Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Belaboring the Point. I'm your host, Kate Riga. Today, we'll bring you a fascinating conversation with Tim Mack and my colleague and friend, Josh Kavinsky, where we'll dive into the Ukrainian counteroffensive and the growing schism in the Republican Party about continuing to aid that effort. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about what we hope to do with this podcast, which will run in addition to our flagship Wednesday pod, the Josh Marshall Podcast. So the thing I like best about working at TPM is the intellectual curiosity, the interest in not covering politics like sports or a game, but interrogating how our underlying systems manifest in our politics and what narratives then grow out of those. We really like ideas, contextualizing what's happening. But the reality is we're very, very small. We currently have four reporters and three editors on staff. By virtue of the fact that we want to know what we cover really well, the better to find new angles and explanations, it limits the breadth of subjects we can cover. We don't want to parachute into a situation we don't know much about, where we can't add value for our readers and listeners. My hope is that this podcast helps bridge that gap. That selfishly lets me explore questions and ideas that have been knocking around the old brain cage that I don't get to explore in my daily reporting. And to help me in that endeavor will be a rotating cast of TPM staffers and outside guests, experts on the subject matter we're exploring. We'll talk about how the new right is hijacking and contorting American masculinity, whether the Inflation Reduction Act was actually a win for climate, unpack our culture of politicians as celebrities, bemoan 15-minute city conspiracy theories and why right-wingers can't let us have nice things. I'll chat with interesting people about interesting things and try to make sense of various pieces of our world. I so hope you'll join me. So, Josh, we had what I... I expected it to be good, but I thought like a really, really fascinating conversation with Tim Mack, who is a former NPR reporter who kind of decamped to Ukraine, um, where he's you know writing a Substack uh, about his experiences there and trying to like put things through kind of human experience lens. So, what did you think of the conversation? Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, you know, Tim, I think gave a really kind of good emotional perspective, uh, both from his own experience covering the war in Ukraine and I think now living there. Um, but also just like how Ukrainians have felt about it. And he also, I think, did that in a way that was really, um, you know, not to be vague, but just kind of brought it back to basically, you know, expressed it in the in a way that like showed how important it is for the U.S. to continue supporting the country. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious what you thought was interesting from it. Well, I guess it's just because there's so much lore built up around, you know, like war correspondence and stuff. That's right. such like... A movie kind of a journalist to be, it feels like. Yeah, it's glamorous for sure. Exactly. And in some ways, you know, he, you, at least I picture, you know, kind of 
like hardened, like weather beaten, like gruff. You know what I mean? But, you know, he, he said something interesting towards the end, I thought, where he talked about like, I don't know. So when I, when I live in Ukraine, I met some like war correspondent types. And mm-hmm. there were these people who would like fly basically from like war zone to war zone. And that was just their life. And it was like, and he, you know, Tim talked about like not being like that, like not being a general junkie. Right. But like one thing that struck me was a little bit like, uh, he was sort of saying it's like, but there is a way that you can become addicted to that kind of thing. Like you can become addicted to covering that kind of conflict. Um, partly because there's just nothing else that's exhilarating that you could like experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he, one thing I'm, I'm curious how this struck, like how this struck you, but one thing that was nice about the conversation was that he really just kept like the human element front and center so it wasn't just like, you know, yeah, 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 I'm like taking all these risks. Look how cool I am. Like you said, it was, you know, it was more human than that. Totally. And it also made me think about how like just the phrase human interest, I feel like captures a kind of journalism that on the other end of the spectrum from war correspondence is like often treated with a lot of like derision. You know, yeah. I feel like human interest is kind of synonymous with like puff piece or you know, kind of featurey profiles that don't always get as much respect. So it's kind of an interesting conflation of like those two spheres. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, you know, one thing we kind of tried to talk about, I I thought what, at least when we went into the conversation thinking we would talk a lot about was how, you know, political support for the, for you, for continuing to arm Ukraine in Congress um, is sort of in jeopardy because of this like hard right flank far right flank um has all this like leverage over kevin mccarthy um you know i'm curious kate if you thought that like anything he said uh in the conversation would impact that like you know if you know and also just like what like what is like going on there i mean it's it's really hard for me to tell um how much this is like real kind of based in real support among republicans uh, among like their you know voters like their base and how much of this is just this like kind of small faction of people who haven't had like a lot of influence. Yeah. The thing that he said that surprised me, I mean, he talked a little bit about how this faction of House Republicans that has turned on Ukraine is like largely a product of kind of Trumpism isolationism, which I think is true. But he was mentioning how some of what we would still kind of call the establishment Republican, um, quote unquote, is like also wearying of Ukraine aid. I think he mentioned the Heritage Foundation as one of those. And that was really interesting to me because the divisions in Congress are pretty neatly along the lines of like, you know, McConnell and co saying, you know, we have to keep kind of giving aid and then these House Republicans. And it's almost hard to tell if it's like ideological at all with the House Republicans because they are saying what he said about well, we don't know if Ukraine is making good use of our money and it's taking too long and like blah, blah, blah. But these are also the same kind of people who are currently, I mean, we're barreling towards a shutdown because they're trying to demand like uh, never before seen levels of government spending that are, you know, like $5 a year. So (laughs) I don't know. I I mean, there's so many like funny like paradoxes with that because like on one hand, like we are giving like an astronomically huge amount of money mm. um, and like an aid in like in terms of weapons. Like it's really like we are just single-handedly like supporting the country. But the flip side is that also like it's actually not that expensive compared to like the size of our budget. Right. Um, you know, we could like be doing way more in other areas. Like this argument you hear from the right that like, you know, well, Flint, Michigan is, you know, decaying because <laughs> uh, or like, you know, Palatine, Ohio, right? The better example. You know, it was dev- devastated by like a train explosion, chemical train explosion because we're giving money to Ukraine. Like it's like it's, it's bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. also Congress only ever talks about how expensive like 
the talk of expense is just always so siloed off to certain things we spend money on, e.g. like anything for like kids or poor people, like any social services is always like, well, that's too expensive. But then, you know, the Pentagon budget every year kind of gets like rubber stamped, except for a, a few progressives who like never vote for it kind of thing. Well, and here's like a big irony. So Tim talked about, you know, being hospitalized in Ukraine, how cheap it was. But, right. You know, one of the one of the things that we're financing because you know, we're giving military aid, but also like macroeconomic aid to keep their uh, basically keep their state functioning mm. um, is that Ukraine is a really generous welfare state, one that's way more generous than the American one. No so, way. Like, so you have this like funny situation with Mitch McConnell basically advocating for like what is like the like an artifact of like the communist welfare state that you know continues to exist in Ukraine after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. I find like I find like sort of funny. But oh, totally. <laughs> Did you ever like encounter that personally when you lived there, the more generous state? Well, I never had to like go to the hospital because yeah, but um, I did mostly just well. I, yeah, I, I did in a few ways. One was like it was incredibly easy to unionize there because oh, you know unions were so well protected under the, under the Soviet labor code and certain and the way it worked out of the Soviet collapse and a lot of the republics that became independent states was they would just sort of take the laws that existed and then try and rewrite as many of them as possible. Whichever ones didn't get rewritten, all of these countries just stayed on the books. Mm. So in Ukraine, if you wanted to form a union, you just needed to find one other employee at least in the time <laughs> I lived there and just say, oh, we're in union now. And you would get all these like protections. Um, you know, for women, uh, you had three years uh, maternity leave. Oh um, my god, three years! Yeah. So there were all these situations, though, of like people, women, people who you know had women who had like five or six kids and had basically not worked at companies, even though they were getting paid like for like, twenty years. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah. Sorry, what were you gonna say? I was gonna ask if your newsroom was unionized when you were there. We were not. Um, I mean, that's a whole separate story about how they, uh, the things they did to avoid that happening. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Uh, but um, I don't know. Tim, I, one, one, I think, thing that listeners will appreciate with Tim, though, is he did get into some of these granular details of like what life is like, you know, in, in, in the country that really is facing the kind of war that we haven't seen since World War II or Korea, arguably, like just, you know, a war against an adversary that uh, is basically is like a near peer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's just the human stories that come out of it are shocking. When you when were you there again a few months ago? Yeah, I visited in May. Okay, when you were there, did it feel like discernibly different from when you'd been when you'd lived there before? Yeah, I mean, the big thing I noticed, and this may have been because the friend I stayed with, um, you know, she lives near she lives near a uh, what used to be a children's hospital, if I recall, but is now a military hospital. Wow. Um, there were just a lot of wounded men uh, just walking around. Like you just, it was just a disproportionately large number really? of people who were obviously had wounds from like combat, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just not like natural things. Yeah, um, that was the that struck me the most. Also, I think to people like Tim who had been there the whole time, um, you know, Kiev probably. I think to those, those people I spoke to, Kiev seems sort of natural, like it's a normal city again. Because at the very beginning, it was just completely empty. To me, it seemed like half empty, um, even wow. now compared to when I lived there. Uh, so those are the few things. Yeah. One thing that he was talking about, which I could have talked to him forever, because I think it's so interesting, is kind of like the mentality of a people under siege for so long. Because I think especially at the beginning, there was this like preponderance of kind of I don't feel good stories, I guess, but stories about people exhibiting like resilience and finding kind of joy 
amid the grind and stuff. And I'm sure that that's still happening. But you know, this is such an imperfect comparison, but it almost reminded me of kind of early stage pandemic where at the very beginning, everyone kind of embraced the weirdness and was like, oh, it's nice to be home and not put on nice clothes and watch TV and stuff. And then like, that just gets so old so fast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just, you know, the kind of the toll that mass death and mass injury takes on people's psychology. Like that's another thing I really appreciated about it was that he was talking about it just in a way that was, it was not like there were no rose colored glasses, right? It was just, uh, it was very, it was very real. It was really depressing. Yeah. And obviously your experience would have been a bit different from him, but something I was wondering that we didn't really get into is like, is reporting there, is it just like really different than reporting here? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I wish we'd asked him about that. My understanding from talking to, friends who are working there now is that um yeah you're a lot of it is based on negotiating with um press secretaries depending you know in certain areas they're under you know ukraine is on it's governed now it's two governments it has like the regular civilian government and military administrations that govern each region govern each region uh so it's just like a different legal regime in place which makes it harder um and your entire access not only to the front line but i think to the country is dependent on you know, accreditation you get from the Ministry of Defense. So, oh, wow. yeah, it's just, there's a lot more. Um, there's, it's, it's just, it's just a much more difficult situation. Yeah. Even before like pre Russia invasion, when you were there, was it really different than how it is now? For yeah. You? I mean, I think, you know, readers of TPM will know that we love covering like law. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Ukraine, corruption was such an issue that if you knew if you could find a corrupt judge you could bribe them to get a court ruling and so you had situations where judges were so corrupt that they would uh issue rule they would the same judge would issue contradictory rulings so anyway but like you know a lot of what we do you know in tpm is like we find a fact or we can say something is probably likely factual because it's alleged in a court document right Right. You know, factual, but we can say that the allegation is there and it's credible for whatever reason because it's, it's, it's you know, alleged by the government in a court document. Um, but that just didn't exist. <laughs> uh, right. So it, it destroyed this like basis of reality. Um, there was another thing I was going to, oh, yeah. I, you know, I think the lawyers and who have listened to us would probably appreciate this. But I had a friend there who was an attorney who said, though, something interesting, which is that court rulings that were uh, issued by honest judges were often more deficient in legal reasoning. Than those issued by corrupt judges, um, which was funny to me. That like, oh my you know, god, the judge on the take would sometimes be smarter than the ones who were, uh, you know, honest. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like we sometimes joke about how, you know, you came to TPM from Ukraine, which is just like seemed random at the time, and then yeah. Ukraine ended up like playing this huge role in in domestic American politics. Like, you know, obviously you had. The, the Zelensky stuff and the first impeachment and then the Russia invasion, like it does well, seem... And now there's like a third impeachment of, you know, of Biden, of, you know, just like first step, was, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> right, which like, <laughs> which, which may also revolve partly around Ukraine. It's very weird. I didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah, your timing was like really impeccable. <laughs> I guess. Um, I don't even I know this. How did you come to TPM from Ukraine? Did you just like find see a job posting or something? Yeah, I applied online. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Had you already decided um, definitely to come back to the States or was it getting the job that precipitated um, that? I knew I wanted to come back to the US. And yeah. I knew I wanted to report on American politics. Um, you know, it was 2018. So Trump was, uh, you know, in office. And it, basically, you know, I was fascinated by Ukraine, but um, what was going on with Trump and everything here seemed really important. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I just was thinking like long-term that I, you know, wanted to live in the U.S. more than I wanted to live in Eastern Europe, and I wanted to cover what was going on here. Were you in Ukraine when Trump was elected? Yeah, I was. And so one interesting thing that I think will resonate with you on Capitol Hill, Kate, um, is that, you know, after that happened, just the reaction in Ukraine was like, it was like, oh my God, this is like, one, I think one politician said, this is a catastrophe. Like, really? <laughs> like everybody oh, interesting. Yeah. Like everybody recognized that like the right wing of the Republican Party was like an existential threat uh, to them. Mm. I swear to God, it's like, it's the new, like, where were you on 9-11 for like younger people? It's like, where were you when Trump got elected and how did people around you react? Because um, I I was in school in D.C. And so, it, you know, it was a tradition that everyone would um, like put on sneakers and run to the White House because, you know, the, the two before us had been Obama's. So like college right. kids were like really excited. And obviously everyone thought it was going to be Hillary. And so it's like <laughs> I just got so like robbed out of the kind of exciting DC college election <laughs> time. Yeah. Literally remember I was sipping a beverage called the nasty woman when um <laughs> when we got in Virginia. And I remember Virginia was super close and then and I was just kind of like, oh my God. <laughs> well, I remember right after the invasion, we did a podcast where we talked about some of this stuff. Um, you know, I remember one thing we talked about was that the Ukraine issue had not completely become um polarized. Totally. Like yet. And I feel like even now, a year and a half on, um, and Tim alluded to this a bit, it's just not as polarized as many other issues that are like really central to what's going on in Congress. Um, Like it is somewhat, right? But like, I mean, do you have that same impression? No, I think that's totally true. Um, And especially at the beginning, we only, we talked about this with him kind of briefly, but it, you know, it was that kind of rare, you know, aisle crossing kind of comprehensive, like, repudiation of what Putin had done and a feeling of, you know, Ukraine flags like everywhere for I feel like American people in general are just so kind of uninterested in like other countries. And it was all of a sudden, a you know, preponderance of kind of blue and yellow and like sunflowers. And everyone was, you know, I went to a concert where they uh, projected the flag and the the guy was like, hey, fuck Putin. Everyone was like, "Woo!" you know, it was like a big cheer line. So, yeah, I mean, even now, to the extent that I think House Republicans are being difficult, I, I do honestly think it's kind of more tied into the pre-existing worldview of like America first non-interventionism than it really is like this dispute in particular. Yeah, I think that's right. It's the whole Ukraine flag thing. It's it's really surreal. Um, you know, Tim was talking like just a little, like, he, he gave really good context. I thought about like um, the culture and some like really funny details, like, you know, troops in the front line ordering Philadelphia sushi rolls. <laughs> Which um, is the grossest sushi, objectively. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, it's funny. Yeah. I don't know if that, if like, I was trying to like think afterwards, like, was that like a like caloric thing? Like, cause like it's oh. like cream cheese, but, or is it just cause they have like weird taste? I don't know. I, I could not like, I, I was trying to, I was like agonizing about this. <laughs> um, yeah. Did yeah. you ever come out across a Philadelphia roll in your time? Yeah, he's he's right. They're really popular, and sushi is popular there. Popular That's there. So I, funny. I actually, and it was funny that he talked about it because I, I mean, like you know, like the logistics of getting it to like the front line of like a war zone, like I can't imagine that. But like even to like Kiev when I lived there, like peacetime, it struck yeah. me as weird that there was like so much fresh sushi everywhere. Totally. Um, it, <laughs> Usually that would be cause for great distrust. <laughs> like right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I don't know. I'm I'm curious. What, like what what like what you kind of think about the conversation that we you know, a couple hours after. Like like what was your big what was your big takeaway? Like I mean, what made the biggest impression on you? Well, I'm just like so fascinated by kind of all of the like what human life is like there detail that trickles through because you know I've never been to Eastern Europe ever, so it's all kind of. Um, you know, feels like foreign to me. And I guess there were just so many stories at the beginning that really were those human interesty ones. You know, I remember listening to podcast episodes about people who were like, I don't know, like bringing their cats with them and stuff. And that there were like a shit ton of cats on these like trains out of the the danger areas and stuff. I don't know. Um, but one thing I've been thinking about that we didn't talk about at all, which is interesting because I think earlier in the invasion, this was all kind of anyone talked about was like Putin and his mindset and his game plan. Do you think we've just kind of like reached a point where people have conceded that there's like no reading that mind? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the thing that Putin, that I almost called Tim Putin. I think it's Tim said, <laughs> uh, um, which uh, struck me was like at this point about exhaustion, right? Like uh, everybody in the West getting tired. And, you know, mm-hmm. we all feel this, right? Um, and whenever I see what people are saying when I read something, it, it seems like American officials are always saying that that's what Putin is counting on, right? Mm-hmm. For um, we in the West to, you know, just basically lose interest and get tired of supporting the Ukrainians um, and what, you know, for us might be a strate- pretty kind of hard-nosed strategic decision, but for them, it's an existential fight. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, that, that's, my, that's my only impression of, of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the idea of kind of like the West getting fatigued about this is so well-founded and like everything else we've done, you know, and it's obviously different, but it makes me think of, you know, with the Afghanistan war, obviously much longer, but I mean, no one was like talking about that before kind of Biden ended it and that everyone was talking about it again, but it is, you know, the out of sight, out of mind thing that I think is what it's so striking to me when you I remember you told me right when you got back about the wounded men walking around in Kiev is like thinking of how it's been so long since that's been an American experience of having like injured soldiers kind of you know in your in your town like walking around day to day and on the kind of scale where it's you know I mean, right Right, where it, it, it's visible to everybody. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, it's a testament to what the Ukrainians are up against. Like one little factoid that I find interesting is the last time we lost a soldier to uh, an enemy aircraft was in the Korean War. It's literally no like, a, like a lifetime ago, right? And Ukrainians yeah. lose people to that like every week, maybe every day. Yeah. Um, and it's oh. just, you know, it's something, I mean, it, it's, it's horrific, but uh, it's, it's just worth keeping in mind for context, I think. Definitely. Okay. So now listeners, you'll get to hear um, our conversation with uh, Josh and Tim Mack. So enjoy. Hi, listeners. This is Kate Riga. Uh, We have a special pod installment for you today. We're joined by Tim Mack, a longtime investigative reporter and foreign correspondent for NPR. He left the radio network this year to start his own reported substack called The Counteroffensive. Tim has been in Ukraine since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022 and has told compelling human stories about the toll of the invasion, Ukraine's resistance, and the course of the war. 
Now Ukraine is three months into a massive counteroffensive aimed at taking back key portions of its territory, most of which was lost in the first days and weeks of the war. This is all coming as political support for further arms to Ukraine remains an open question in Congress thanks to a far-right flank which is pressuring Speaker Kevin McCarthy to block further aid. Tim Mack joins us to discuss his newsletter, The Counteroffensive, and his perspective on U.S. support for Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. And we're also here with uh, TPM's kind of resident Ukraine guy, Josh Kavinsky. Josh, thank you so much for joining as well. Thanks, Kate, and thanks for coming, Tim. Um, I wanted to start off with uh, the counteroffensive. So I just wanted to see if you could kind of explain to us uh, and to our listeners, you know, what has Ukraine been trying to accomplish here? Um, and why does this matter, not just for them, but also for the support they've been getting from uh, foreign countries? Sure. Well, as in terms of their objectives, they're pretty broad and they're pretty ambitious, right? That the hope of this counteroffensive when it launched uh, in this late spring, early summer, was that they would be able to push Russians out of occupied territory in Ukraine. Um, and the way that they're doing it is that they're fighting on a number of fronts, uh, two along the south of the country and one in the east. Now, you may have heard of, and I'm sure many of the listeners may have heard of, the town of Bakhmut. Uh, this is this very small town that's been almost totally destroyed by fighting between Ukrainian and Russian forces. And over the last few months in eastern uh, Ukraine in the Donbass region, this kind of industrial area of Ukraine, there's been a ton of fighting there and even before the counteroffensive. Um, and in the south, what uh, what Ukrainian forces are trying to do is they're trying to block off the land route to Crimea. Now, if you can kind of picture in your head an image of Ukraine, you'll uh, and you fill in the area that Russian troops are currently occupying, they, they have a direct land route to this highly contested Ukrainian area uh, called Crimea. And so the Ukrainians are trying to push the Russians back from that area and, and to disrupt logistics. But ultimately, it's as simple as this. The Ukrainians want Russians off their soil. Right. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to see if we could rewind a bit and if you could just kind of give us some context here. You know, I think a lot of Americans are familiar with how um, Ukraine pushed the Russians back from Kyiv, and then the same thing happened in the Kharkiv region around a year ago. But you know, how did Russia manage to take so much land in the south, in the region that you just kind of described, in the first days and weeks of the war? I mean, just what kind of happened there? Well, if you talk to most Ukrainians, they would tell you that they were totally taken off guard by the full-scale invasion. They thought maybe there will be some attacks in the east. Maybe there, there probably won't be a war at all. I mean, almost to a person, Ukrainians did not think it was going to happen. And so when Russian troops began flooding into the country in February 2022, it took a lot of people off guard. And uh, the Russians were able to very quickly take control of uh, certain cities in the south, uh, cities like Mariupol and Melitopol. Um, and uh, this, is, this is territory that they still hold now. I realize right. I didn't answer your question on political, <laughs> on, on like the, on on the political demand. Do you want me to touch on that just briefly right now? Yeah, sure. Um, and so on the political side, uh, Ukrainians are kind of running out of time. They've asked for and received tens of billions of dollars worth of equipment and support from the United States and its Western allies. And I think there's a lot of pressure on not just the American government and the Biden administration, but also in all sorts of capitals in Europe and elsewhere about whether the Ukrainians are putting that to good use. Um, and so you know, purely from a political perspective, um, a lot of diplomats will, will 
come to Ukraine or speak to Ukrainian government officials, and and, and they want to make sure that 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 investment is showing results. Um, and the Ukrainians are desperately trying to show that that the money and the aid that's been given to them is being used for good and successful and victorious purposes. Yeah, let's kind of jump into that a little bit because, you know, we have Zelensky set to come to D.C. this week, meeting with Biden and with Congress. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, we have this the shutdown looming and this like big divide, especially between, you know, Senate Republicans and this faction of House Republicans that are kind of, uh, you know, don't want to provide further aid. You know, Byron Donalds yesterday said there's no money for him in the House. It's not a good time for him to come. Can you kind of get into that divide? And, you know, why did this kind of flank of Republicans like break off what was once kind of a, you know, I think a cohesive, at least national mood in the United States that, you know, Ukraine were the good guys and we wanted to support them? I think this is very much uh, Trump's party, right? That Trump has come, came to office in 2016 on the promise that, you know, this sort of support in, in, in foreign efforts would not be welcome under an administration that he led. And, um, you know, one anecdote that I like to tell is that last year I was, um, I was in Houston for the National Rifle Association convention, annual convention. And um, he gave a speech that was pretty well received about guns, obviously. And um, he got polite applause when it came to things related to the Second Amendment. But the thing that got the most applause, the thing that he was most lauded for, the entire speech was when he said, and I'm paraphrasing, if I become elected president again, we'll stop immediately all this aid that's going to Ukraine. And so He's led it. Part of it. Part of it is that he's led the Republican Party to this point, which is kind of the America First, yeah, you know, philosophy. And part of it is also is that I think after you know twenty plus years um, of the global war on terror, there's a big segment of the Republican population that doesn't want America intervening in uh, overseas issues, at least not in ways that 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 cost uh, substantial chunks of change. Yeah. So you think that, you know, McConnell's kind of like enduring support of Ukraine, is that just a, a vestige of kind of what establishment Republicans kind of were pre-Trump? I think so. Although you're seeing you're, you're seeing the McConnells of the world basically have the same views that they would have had had Trump never run for any political office. But you're seeing, you know, uh, you're seeing conservative institutions kind of change in ways that are kind of surprising to me, right? That in the past, McConnell's um, support of Ukrainian aid uh, would have been backed by, you know, the big Republican conservative think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, which has increasingly exhibited a lot of skepticism and I believe is not supporting any future Ukraine aid packages um, going forward. Um, it, it, you know, there, things are really changing in the conservative movement. Um, and it's it's pretty much all led by uh, Trump's views on this and, and him pulling the party in a different direction. So, Tim, I wanted to see if you could kind of tie the political discussion in the U.S. to just the kind of practical realities for Ukrainian troops on the ground. Um, you know, you've written really, I think, in a really detailed and kind of fascinating and frankly touching way about just the toll that the Ukrainians are facing, particularly with regard to the obstacles and the minefields that they face in the South. So can you kind of describe just, I mean, what they're up against in terms of the mines and the obstacles they face and what kind of impact USAID is having there? I think there's been a lot of consternation in the West about 
why Ukrainians aren't making the progress they supposedly should be making during this counteroffensive. Um, the, the, the big one of the major reasons is because the Russians were able to spend months and months preparing their defenses. And that involves these large minefields that make up um, significant swaths of territories where hundreds of mines will be laid out on a field to prevent any sort of soldiers from walking along them. Um, this is includes personnel mines and uh, anti-vehicle mines. Um, and then beyond that, there will be more defenses, trenches with emplaced guns, dragon's teeth to prevent tanks and, and, and tracked vehicles from, from going over. The Russians have really been able to spend a lot of time building up um, barriers to Ukrainian advancement. Uh, one of the really important things that I'm trying to do at the counteroffensive, which you can you can read at counteroffensive.news, is to not provide news as, as, uh, as like uh, an event that happened, but instead look at news through the prism of an individual experiencing. So, you know, the story that we wrote when it came to the counteroffensive is to talk about a guy named Harley Whitehead, who was... Um, who decided when the full-scale invasion started to go get his explosive ordnance disposal technician uh, certification in Kosovo and then come back to Ukraine to help clear mines. And what he describes is he sees these fields that are just peppered with mines as far as the eye can see. They spend, you know, 10 hours a day disarming and taking apart and then kind of collecting mines and then, you know, the, the, the problem with this is that they're also in danger of being uh, fired upon this entire time as they're trying to disarm these mines. And if, if the Russians spot them, then they, they can start shooting the EOD, the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Technicians. So it's a very dangerous, dangerous task. And, um, and it, it's, it's very time consuming, which is why the Ukrainians are taking as much time as they are. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds kind of horrific. You know, one I think feature that we've seen of the coverage in the Western press for the past, like, couple, I think several weeks or really a month or two has been um, veiled criticism from, you know, usually anonymous officials in the Pentagon or somewhere in the American defense establishment, basically saying the Ukraine's either going too slowly, or the tactics are incorrect, or, you know, whatever the, the critique might be. Um, but I'm kind of curious if you give us just some context here. Like, what training did the Ukrainians receive from the West before having to undertake this task? And ha secondarily, like, has the U.S. military ever had to do something like this? Like, basically ever had to complete the task the Ukrainians face right now? I think the two questions are really important and interrelated. Um, so let me try to take them together. I mean, um, sure. the, the training that they received was pretty basic fire and maneuver training that you'd give to uh, American troops or Western troops. The British will have their way of doing it. The Americans will have their way of doing it. But it's generally they're, they're singing from the same um, general sheet of music. Um, the... Uh, the thing that the Ukrainians have to do, however, is that is something that the Americans never would do. They would never um, they would never conduct a counteroffensive in the way that the Ukrainians are, are conducting it, because the Americans have always had this principle of establishing control of the skies, air superiority before any sort of major campaign like this. And you'll see this as a priority over and over again in American military planning. The problem is that Russia is such a such a larger country, such a better resource country with such a strong military. The Ukrainian military, in comparison, has not been able to control the skies. And they have an air force of a size that is simply insufficient to challenge the Russian air force 
along the front lines. So while they can use their Air Force, they are not able to now or even with the delivery of these F-16s that, that they've been asking for, they won't be able to establish air superiority. So that's the one big thing, right? Um, if they had air superiority, they could do things like take out a lot of artillery pieces and missile launchers and rocket launchers uh, that are targeting people uh, like the folks trying to demine these wide open and, and very vulnerable fields that are covered in uh, mines and anti-vehicle uh, explosive devices. But they don't. So what, what they're doing is something that is far more costly in, in terms of life and in terms of limb than Americans would ever generally plan for it or, 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 or can, you know, conduct a campaign on. Um, uh, the Ukrainians are doing something that Americans typically would never do themselves. You know, one thing about so much of your reporting is you look at it, you know, through the lens of kind of human experience, um, you know, the people who are there. You know, how long are the people in Ukraine kind of expecting the war to last at this point? You know, like what, what are they prepared for? It's a really interesting question. Um, right now, there's a sense of this deep bitterness and anger that I feel from a lot of folks that I've talked to for a long time. And I don't see that letting up. I mean, there, there was a moment very early when the invasion first started that people thought, oh, well, that I hope this just lasts a few months. Um, maybe we could, you know, we could reach some sort of stalemate where cooler heads could prevail and, and, and you know, the diplomats or representatives from each side could find some way to stop the killing. Um, but as time has gone on and the mass graves have been discovered and the atrocities have been written about and people see their wounded loved one comes home, come home or their dead loved ones never come home alive, um, this recurring mental trauma has deepened this bitterness in people who in normal non-war circumstances you'd consider the kindest people in the world. You know, I spoke to one doctor who was telling me, you know, look, and, and she's religious. She said, look, I'm Christian. I, I know that I'm, I'm called on by my religion to forgive people. But after reading about all these atrocities, I simply can't. I just want them to die. Um, you know, I, it, these are the people that any political settlement will have to convince is adequate, right? Or sorry, these are the people that any politician will need to convince a political settlement is adequate if there is to be a political settlement or negotiation that ends the war, right? So when you're talking to doctors who volunteer on the weekends to help uh, sick people uh, and they're saying, we need to kill them all, um, you know, the society has hardened itself to the, to the concept of violence and the concept of continued violence, at least for the foreseeable future. I think that there's so much anger and bitterness. I just don't see how a deal uh, that is negotiated could be accepted by the public. It's not just whether Zelensky wants to end the war, and I don't think he does. It's about whether the public would accept a negotiated end. And I, I really, really, after all the death and killing and terror I really just don't see how in the short term uh, Ukrainians as a whole could, could, could accept something. And that's why I think it will, it will take a very, very long time indeed. I was just going to ask quickly in, uh, in response to that, the settlement thing, you know, what you just said about kind of the emotional piece is really interesting. Are there like kind of hard parameters in terms of, uh, 
you know, the side positions on like what a settlement would entail. I think it's still Zelensky's position, as far as I'm aware, that, you know, it would have to entail no uh, Ukrainian land given to, to Russia. Are there like any firm parameters around that kind of talk about that? Yeah, this is this is an interesting question because people have not sufficiently even gotten their heads around what that that would involve, right? That that um, people talk about fighting on till victory, and of course, victory means many many different things to many different people. Um, I do not see in the near future the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian people backing off of their their demands that Russians leave their territory. In, it, in, in its entirety. Um, that's, of course, something that the Russians are not at this moment prepared to uh, prepared to do. And so from a diplomatic standpoint, there's very little for the two sides to talk about. In fact, I don't believe they're talking at all. I don't believe they're even close to talking about what the, the parameters of talking would even involve, you know, like, uh, you know, it, it, we're so far. It's not it's not a it's not a con. You know, when I talk to Ukrainian officials, it's not even a concept that that gets very much. Uh, uh, it, it's not taken seriously. So you, you mentioned in one uh, recent piece that people in Ukraine are starting to like bend and break um, from the stress of everything that you just described, and that you yourself were hospitalized recently. I mean, just what's it been like to kind of experience on the, all this, just be in the center of this war on an emotional level? I've been joking to my friends that uh, my hospitalization was part of a deep undercover investigative story that I was doing on the Ukrainian public health system. And I can report... Okay, well, a quick side note there. Um, I was prepared for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. The the American in me was prepared for this (laughs) horrific, you know, $40,000 hospital bill. But I was in the hospital for uh, four days trying to get better. And... um, and the bill was $180, um, which is oh astonishing. That, that, yeah, and I, I received quite adequate care. Um, but this, the, the, the best way I can describe why it is that probably I got sick and why other folks are, are starting to bend and break is that, that being in Ukraine for an extended period of time, it's, it's, there's this low-level kind of grinding high-pitched stress that ha- that just weighs on you every moment you're around because it's not dangerous every single second. It's not like, I'm, you know, there the, the guns being fired and explosions that I'm dodging, you know. But there's there's something, there's an awareness at all times that the, the next moment might involve an air alert and, and sirens going off and uh, uh, drones coming into the city or missiles coming in. And everyone um, is constantly reading the news, which is filled with horrific images and videos of maimings and killings of torture and it's impossible to report on this war without without um exposing yourself to that and it's impossible to be a citizen of ukraine um without at least coming into contact with a sufficient amount of it i mean part of what the counteroffensive is doing um, our publication is doing is we're trying to tell um not just events happening but give a deeper understanding of the cultural and linguistic and historical um backgrounds of uh of ukraine not not just as a place where violence is occurring but as a place that's worth exploring in and of itself and as we've done that we've met a lot of people from varying walks of life you know one person that i met is uh is a former amateur boxer who is just a big dude and like you know one of the strongest people that i know super stoic and I could just see his mental health degrading in some ways over the last year and a half, um, as it has with all of us. 
Um, and, and he's not the only one. I mean, I, I, I've noticed a lot of people um, just break down, uh, start crying. There, there's a lot of folks who turn um, their, their kind of traumas into, into anger as a way of processing it. And that, that's, that's led to quite a bit of, I, I've seen that quite a bit as well. Um, and, and it will only compound and get more difficult and worse as time goes on, I think. Uh, it's, it's, it, you know, in Ukraine right now, if you're a male um, of fighting age, you're not allowed to leave the country. Um, and so there's really not, you can't take a break from this kind of what I described earlier is like this grinding high pitched stress that's always there. It's always there in the background. And I, I, I think that that in, in, in no small way is, is contributing to, to, to what's been happening and what I'm observing around me. You know, you were speaking earlier about some of the bitterness that this has created in people, um, mainly you know, from what you described towards Russia. But I'm curious, you know, have you perceived any bitterness directed towards the West for being slow, you know, possibly in providing weapons or just for the kind of endless debates we have over um, what kind of support we're going to provide? Yeah. And this is something where, you know, I think what I, what I said about how trauma turns to anger. I mean, um, there is a lot of anger. Um, you know, at, at, at a minimum, there's frustration um, at certain Western countries for either not being sufficiently supportive or acting quickly enough or acting um, or, or providing a sufficient or what they view as a sufficient amount of or quality of, of, of military arms. Um, you know, on the one hand, you've, you've seen these Western diplomats say, and I'm sure you've read some of these stories that they're insufficiently, uh, they, they feel like Ukraine is being insufficiently thankful for the aid that um, the West has provided Ukraine. But from the Ukrainian perspective, they're dying on a daily basis. They're seeing, you know, these traumatic images. They're seeing schools and hospitals and markets and innocent people, children being injured and killed. And they're saying, why aren't you doing enough? Why aren't you doing more to stop it? We're we're, we're, we're getting killed here. Um, and so, and, and so this is the source I think with, with, uh, of a lot of the frustration there. Um, this, this frustration is only, uh, I think going to grow because as we've been talking about earlier in this conversation, um, as time goes on, not only will the bitterness increase and the anger increase, but also I think the Western interest in, or should I say the Western, um, willingness to provide humanitarian and military aid to Ukraine is going to decrease as people um, turn away from the story, um, as, as it becomes less novel. Um, that That is going to, in turn, lead to more Ukrainian anger and, and more Ukrainian bitterness, I think. Um, it, it's one of the things, you know, Western apathy on this is, is one of the things I'm trying to do with the counteroffensive. Um, we're trying to tell human stories so that would be interesting, compelling, and and and, and um, worth reading, whether they took place in Ukraine or not. That delves deep into the lives of individual people who are experiencing this war, um, but in relatable ways. Uh, I think that um, people lose that that apathy when they can imagine themselves in the situations of uh, a person who experiences a. Uh, a drone uh, attack in Kiev, for example, um, when they see, oh, that apartment kind of looks a little bit like my apartment. And by the way, that dog that she has, 
that's the same breed of dog. It looks kind of like my dog. Um, that that's what we're hoping to do with with our kind of um, unique style of narrative journalism. And these human stories you tell obviously, you know, entail getting close to people and having people kind of let you in. You know, what's that been like? What have you learned, you know, about the country and, and the people who live there? And how have you grown as a reporter from doing this work? That's a hard question. Can I have a second to think about it? <laughs> of course. Yeah. I haven't really considered this question. And it's a really difficult one because I think I think that like uh, over the last year and a half, I've been so busy doing the reporting. I'm not sure... I've reflected very seriously about how it's changed me as a journalist. I think that one of the things that, that it's changed is, is, I guess, my willingness to put myself in these situations. Well, I can share this story. I mean, last September, about a year ago, I left Ukraine after doing this very in-depth, eight-month-long uh, investigation into a war crime. And it was absolutely brutal. And I was... I was just totally traumatized by it. And I said to myself, I'm never going back to Ukraine again. I'm just going to go back to the States, go surfing and try to pretend like, you know, just put this all behind me. And a month passes, two months passes. I start to think to myself, well, now that I'm recovered a little bit on some sleep and thought about it a little bit more, I can't wait to get back to Ukraine. How do I get back to Ukraine as soon as possible? Um, the fact is selfishly, that as, as much as I do care about these stories, I also get the benefit of, of thinking to myself that these are some of the most important stories I'll, I'll probably ever get to tell in my life and, and stories that go deeper into, um, into my subjects, emotions and feelings and, and views and opinions than, than, uh, than probably at any other time. Um, and there's, there's a lot of dynamism and excitement to it. Um, I can't deny that. Um, and, and you get a sense of why war correspondents over time um, get so many folks wanting to go back again and again. There, there is something about I, I'm not an adrenaline junkie by any means. You won't find me bungee jumping or jumping out of planes. It's not something that I want to do. But there's some real kind of feeling of fulfillment and, and value that, that I think that I've learned over this time. And I, I hope and I try to have become a more empathetic person of this, this period to, to try to tell some of these stories in ways that will make a difference and, and keep people engaged in this topic, uh, this, this really very important topic of the Ukrainian, the war in Ukraine. And um, one that I, sadly, I think people are starting to lose a little bit of track of. And I think just, you know, to kind of put a bow on this conversation, um, you've spoken a little bit about uh, what you're trying to do with the counteroffensive, but can you just kind of describe in similar terms? I mean, what are you trying to do with it? And I mean, what, what, what makes you keep coming back to Ukraine? Um, well, look, I mean, our basic goal has been to try to tell these personal stories of people that are threatened by authoritarianism. In this case, in Ukraine, that's obviously with, with Russia. And, and like I say, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to do was not look at people as merely kind of pawns that events happen to, but um, people as, um, uh, as, as individuals with profound backgrounds that happen to be in the news. Um, and, and Ukraine, not merely as a place where war is happening, but a place with this deep history and culture and these language debates and even culinary traditions that are really, really worth exploring. And, and kind of my, my perspective on this is that empathy and, and autocracy 
can't coexist. That is that when you tell these stories of people, um, the injustice of it all, the oppression by dictatorships and the absurdity of some of the violence, uh, the injustice of it all will demand change, will require change. It insists upon it. And, and that's kind of the theme of what we're trying to do is telling the news through the perspective of a single individual that we can actually get to know. So what's the most interesting thing that, that you've experienced in Ukraine? Well, look, most people expect me when I answer this question, they expect me to like say something about the front lines or weapons, explosions or what it feels like to hear Iranian drones outside. But Actually, it's almost a surprise to me, right? Like we we cover a lot, not just the war, but also um, the food of Ukraine, for example. And everyone knows borscht and everyone thinks that Ukraine's national dish is borscht. But what I've actually realized is that Ukraine's national dish is really the Philadelphia roll. Okay, Ukrainians are obsessed with sushi, but they're uh, they're like weirdly and uniquely obsessed with the Philadelphia roll in particular. Now, if you go to the front lines, just off the front lines, you'll be able to get sushi. I don't know how they get the fish. I don't know where they get the fish. We're nowhere near the ocean. And I've tried, I've looked into this, you know, as a reporter, I put my reporter hat on. And as I'm eating sushi, I'll ask, you know, the proprietor of the sushi place, like, where did you get this sushi? And they'll say, oh, it just comes in. You know, we, we, we go and purchase it, of course. I'm like, but where does that, where does the fish come from? No one seems to know. But, but Ukrainians have become over the last 10, 15 years, just obsessed with sushi. Um, my, I have a theory about this relating to, you know, um, about how the, the rise of sushi in Ukraine after the Orange Revolution and then again after the, the, the Revolution of Dignity and the Maidan in, in 2014 as kind of like Ukrainians reaching out to the world and saying we wanted, they wanted a less Russian place and wanted a more kind of global, globally connected through the West kind of thing. And in comes the humble Philadelphia role, uh, which is, of course, this kind of Americanized, this kind of Americanized uh, global food, I guess you would call it. Well, you're going to have to come back once you've solved the Philadelphia role mystery. This one's going to live with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will. I will try. Awesome. Tim, it's been so wonderful to have you on. One more time for the people in the back, where can our listeners find your work? Uh, they can find it at counteroffensive.news. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Belaboring the Point with Kate Riga is a TPM podcast. The show is hosted by, surprise, me, reporter Kate Riga. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to our TPM members who make the show possible. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, cool. ...or attending one live... Goal! 
You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.